When I say the words street art, what do you think of? Maybe a guy on the causeway in Victoria? Don't show that picture yet. <laughs> uh, maybe he's doing some cartoon art, kind of takes your face and then puts a cartoon body on it. Well, street art has gone to a whole new level in recent years. Uh, I want to show you the first picture. This was done for the premiere of the movie Alice in Wonderland in Norway. That's on a street. That's incredible. That's amazing. All right, we're going to show the next one. Now, that is really hard for your brain not to think that they are sitting on top of that thing. They're actually sitting on the street. That's amazing. That's flat pavement. All right, third one. This is called The Giant. Absolutely phenomenal. Would you be brave enough to step on them? I don't know. All right, this is my favorite one. This lady on the bike looks very concerned she might fall off that board, tumble into the chasm. Pretty amazing what an artist can do just on a street. And it's all about perception and depth and the way we view things. And what we're going to talk about today is that the way God looks at us as people, as opposed to the way that we tend to look at each other. We're going to continue our little mini five-part sermon series looking at the lives of Saul and David and ultimately Goliath. So we're going to dive into 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1-5. through 5. If you have your print Bible, I encourage you to open that at this time. If you have an app on your smartphone, you can get that going or follow along on the screens. 1 Samuel 16, 1-5. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. <laughs> when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Well, last week when we began this series, we saw the spiritual downfall of King Saul. Samuel, the mighty prophet, got right up in his face and boldly declared God's message to Saul that obedience is better than sacrifice. And that because of Saul's bad decisions, God had rejected him as king. Now Samuel had a soft spot for Saul. He faithfully passed on God's message, but when he left, he went home and he wept for Saul. I think Samuel felt like a bit of a, a mentor figure, a father figure to Saul. And it pained his heart greatly to see Saul fail so spectacularly. Our passage opens in an interesting way with God saying, Enough mourning and weeping over Saul. Get yourself together. 
I got a job for you to do. Now, counseling is a fascinating thing. Sometimes people are so broken and wounded, what they need is care. They need a hug. They need a really gentle hand. Other times, what people need is a good kick in the rear end. And this is essentially what God does to Samuel. He says, enough. Get out there. I got a job for you to do. And Samuel raises a question. He says, um, Lord, if I'm on my way to anoint a new king, I think the current king won't like that very much. I think he's going to try and kill me. God says, well, I'll give you another purpose. You can go to Bethlehem, take a heifer, and make a sacrifice to me on behalf of the entire village. So Samuel did as he preached. He obeyed God. He had some fears, but that didn't stop him. He obeyed what God told him. Now God says to Samuel some really interesting words. He says, I have provided me a king. It's really interesting language. And it's done on purpose because the former king, the first king, Saul, he was the people's choice. Saul, it says, was a head taller than everybody. He was this tall dude. He was amazing. He was muscular. He looked amazing on the outside. Problem was, his heart wasn't right on the inside. So this time, God says, I've let you as a nation choose. This time, I'm going to choose. And this time, God selected David, a man the Bible describes as after God's own heart. You see, David's primary preoccupation, he occasionally fell off the, the rail sometimes, but his primary preoccupation from the beginning of his life to the end was not his own glory first, it was God's. It was God's reputation, God's glory that he was most concerned about. We've kind of all heard the phrase, your reputation goes ahead of you. And Samuel's a living, breathing example of this. He shows up at the gates of Bethlehem, a very small town, and the elders of the town come to greet him, and they're literally physically shaking in their boots. Why would they be so scared of Samuel? Well, he had a pretty amazing reputation as bringing the Word of God, and it always came true. And these guys are worried that Samuel's there to pronounce judgment on their town. That they have done something wrong and he's there to publicly condemn it and bring God's wrath on them. But he says, no, 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 no. I come in peace. That's not my purpose at all. In fact, I'm here to offer a sacrifice on your behalf for your entire village. Now, this little account, these first five verses, raise a question for me personally. Maybe for you as well. What do we do when God has a job for us to do, but we don't feel like doing it? Samuel was busy grieving Saul when God says, enough prophet boy, on your feet, I got work for you to do. Sometimes when God comes to us and has a task, a job, a calling for us, it's not always at the right time. It's not the most convenient time. And we think, Lord, why now? Honestly got a billion things going on. I got challenges. I got problems. I got struggles. Why are you asking me to do this? Last summer, first couple days of July, Lori and I were feeling tired. We had just come off a bunch of big events at the church. We had done scholarship Sunday in June with all the kids coming to get their scholarships. 
Father's Day. And then Ray Gourlay left our staff. And so we celebrated his ministry, made a big video, did all this stuff, sent him off. And then uh, Bev Geiger retired. She thought it was a good idea to retire. So everyone's going. So we celebrated Bev's ministry, sent her off. Um, then we hired Jessica Tatrol in the office. It was a really busy season. And right in the midst of that, our neighbors across the street knock on our door. And uh, so we open the door and they're like, hi. Um, well, we have this idea. We've always wanted to put a block party on for our whole neighborhood, but we've never been brave enough to do it. We, we always had the idea and the desire. We just didn't think we could pull up, but we think you guys can. <laughs> We're like, and in my head, I kind of went, really? Not right now. But what came out of my mouth was, oh, that's an amazing idea. <laughs> and it really felt like not the right time, not the most convenient time. we got too much going on. Life's too busy. But as Lori and I talked it over that evening, we thought, you know what? Honestly, step back, take a look at the big picture. These are our unchurched neighbors who don't yet know Jesus. They are coming to us, the Christians on the block, asking us to be hospitable and they want to help. They want to do it with us. Like, honestly, what more could we want? So we went to them and said, absolutely, let's go for this. And so we talked about our plans and our ideas. And they got so excited about it. It was amazing. And so Calista and Malia, our two daughters, helped make little invitations, hung them on all the doors. I think we invited 120 people or something. 74 people showed up to this block barbecue. It was insane. And all these people are coming and are like, you know what? This is the majority of the people who live here. Let's just shut the road off. We're like, are we allowed to do that? I don't know. Let's just do it. I'm sure Dan, Dan Gillard's up there having a heart attack. He's like, that would prevent the fire trucks. But we're like, well, I can go around. So anyways, we just, we just blocked the whole street off. And it was amazing. And you know what was really amazing is what it did for our relationship with our neighbors. Uh, they just, it just took it to a whole new level. They invited us to their holiday place in Mexico. So I don't know. That wasn't really our intention, but that's a cool little perk. So. Sometimes, just like Samuel, God interrupts our life. It's not always the most convenient, but it's always the best. All right, now we're moving on to the big moment. Jesse had eight sons. Which one will God choose? 1 Samuel 16, we're picking up in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? 
Well, there's still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Amazing. What a scene. And these verses are so important. They really begin to form the way that we, as people who claim to follow Jesus, see people and see the world as a whole. I want to read the key verse for us one more time. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Those verses, I can't overstate how important they are. And I love these insightful comments by Rolf Jacobson. He's Old Testament prof at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. He says, There was one more son, but he was the youngest and of such little account that Jesse had left him out in the field tending the sheep. When David was brought forth, the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. This brief drama, beautiful in its use of irony, suspense, and reversal of expectations, plays on the contrast between seeing and hearing. The problem is that Samuel is relying on his human sense of vision, which will not do for the work of God. Samuel's job was not so much to see as to listen. You shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. The message is clear. When dealing with matters of God's action and will, human sight is an inadequate tool. The human sense of hearing, if we are listening to God, is preferable. This dimension of the text rings out loudly in our cultural context. We rely for almost everything on our sight, but it often proves untrustworthy. Advertisers know the quickest way to get their fingers into our wallets is through our eyes by bombarding us with images of sexuality and excess. God's priority of looking at the heart instead of the appearance is such a countercultural thing to do. We live in a culture so obsessed with the outside appearance of a person that we hardly even notice when we ourselves make these judgments hundreds of times every single day. I want us to check out this video. This is a brilliant little video. It's made by the Dove Soap Company. We're going to turn down the lights, turn up the sound, and watch this.
is the billboard you're walking beside. And tons of people look at those images and they compare themselves to them and they think, man, I just don't measure up. They don't even know it's not real. Buried deep inside us, we know that character trumps looks in the order of what is important. But we slip into the gravity pull of culture so easily. In the late 80s, early 90s, a fantastic Canadian rock band called the Northern Pikes. And uh, one of my favorite songs from them is called She Ain't Pretty. Here's the lyrics of the first verse. It says, I had two jobs. I had dishwater hands and on the weekend in a rock and roll band. One Friday night in my hometown bar and walked a girl who looked like a movie star. She stared at me and it was turning me on. She said she worked in a beauty salon. I heard a voice inside me say, she ain't pretty. She just looks that way. What's inside of us is actually the most important. After pondering this for quite a while, I believe that what this comes down to in practical application is this. That our judgments of people should be judged on number one, their character. Number two, everything else. Now the Bible doesn't say if you're a truly ugly or homely person, then you automatically have great character. At the same time, just because someone's incredibly handsome, (laughs) oh, just kidding. Come on, you knew I had to do that. At the same time, just because you're handsome doesn't automatically mean you have bad character. What the Bible's very clear about is the order. The way God sees us as human beings, which is therefore the best way to view human beings, is to say great character and heart, especially when we have the connection with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Great character always trumps looks on the scale of value. Someone might ask, well, how do we evaluate a person's character? I mean, it's not quite as visible as their outside appearance. Well, I think we get to know them over a period of time. We hear the things that come out of their mouth. They, we see the way they treat other people. We watch their actions. And we see the, where their priorities lie. Maybe with how they spend their time and spend their money. Those clues give us a fairly good idea of a person's heart and character. Obviously, only God knows inside a person for sure. But we can kind of begin to know. And we know this as human beings. I mean, we have sayings around this. We say, don't judge a book by its cover. But we still fall into the pattern. Martin Luther King Jr. in his famous speech, I Have a Dream, longed for people to get past just viewing each other by the color of their skin. He powerfully stated, he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day Live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. So is it wrong to be a beautiful woman or a handsome man? Absolutely not. But when the focus is on the inside, then a beautiful person is made even more beautiful by a godly character shining through. David was the chosen one. At the beginning, he appeared to be the smallest and weakest of his brothers, Kind of the run to the litter. But you know what God saw inside David? He saw the heart of a lion. And he became Israel's greatest king. And at the same time, Israel's greatest worship leader. Pastor and blogger Chuck Warnock comments. He says, you don't have to be rich 
strong, full, or powerful. It's the upside-down kingdom. This kingdom of God where possibility trumps power. Where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. It's a contradiction to our culture and every culture. It's what God is looking for. When David is at the end of his life, he passes on this vital lesson to his son Solomon. It says in 1 Chronicles 28, So now I charge you in the sight of all Israel and of the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, be careful to follow all the commands of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and pass it on as an inheritance to your descendants forever. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands every desire and every thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Well, apparently, David never forgot this crucial lesson he learned at age 15. It lasted to the end of his life. So David is anointed the future king. Well, when does this actually happen? When does David actually get to become king? Not for quite a while, it turns out. Let's read our, first, our last two verses, verses 12 and 13. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. So scholars feel that David was about 15 years old at that time. The Spirit of the Lord powerfully comes on him. He's anointed as king. How long does he have to wait to actually become king? Well, it tells us in 2 Samuel 2.4. It was actually 15 years later. He's now age 30. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron where they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. Now, if you know your Old Testament history at all, there wasn't just one tribe. There were 12 tribes. So David at age 30 gets anointed king over one out of 12. It takes another seven and a half years before all the rest of the tribes finally say, yep, David, you're the guy, you're our king. Second Samuel 5, 1-3. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel. You shall become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So ultimately, David had to wait 22 and a half years before he fully became king over the entire nation. That's quite a while to wait when you're anointed at 15 years of age. Why did God make him wait so long? Well, clearly at 15, David wasn't ready. It seems to be the pattern that before God gives someone great authority, he tests that person over a period of time to see if they're worthy of the blessing and the calling. God looks on the heart of man and not on the outward appearance. And when the heart is ready, that's when God gave David his authority. 
I was thinking about the young adults in our congregation right now. If you're nearing the end of high school or you're in university or you're working in a job, sometimes it can feel like David. Lord, I know you've got something great in store for me, but right now you're asking me to prepare. You're asking me to wait. Here's what I want to tell all of our young adults this morning. Don't despise the preparation time. Don't get impatient. Maybe God has work experience for you. Maybe God's got some challenges that you need to go through to mature you into a great person. Maybe God wants to give you more knowledge, further schooling. Whatever it is, don't despise the preparation time because God used that so powerfully in David's life. And God will use it in yours. All right, we've covered some great ground in these first 13 verses. What is your takeaway today? Maybe it's like we saw a demonstrator in point number one, that God comes to us at an inconvenient moment with a task. Is that you today? Do you feel like God's knocking on your door saying, I got a job for you. And you're saying, God, not right now. Maybe today's the day you say yes. You need to pray about it. If it's from God, He will give you the strength even when you think you can't do it. If Lori and I hadn't kind of leaned into Christ for the strength, we would have missed an incredible opportunity to do a block party in our neighborhood. Maybe it's the second point that's relevant to you. The way that God really looks at people. Maybe you yourself have been the victim of people judging you on your outward appearance. Take heart. God's will for your life is unstoppable. He will bring you from obscurity to prominence just like He did for David. Maybe on the flip side, you've been guilty of being the one doing the judging on appearance alone. I think this passage tells each and every one of us, stop it. It's not in line with how God views people. Look past their appearance to their heart, which is ultimately demonstrated in their actions and in their attitudes. Maybe it's what we saw in point number three, that God is giving us preparation time. We aren't meant to despise it, we're meant to embrace it. So whatever it is, a task from God, a new way of looking at people, or the patience to wait while God prepares us, let's be inspired by David's life and what Scripture has to tell us. Amen? Taya, please come pray for us. Let's pray.